The Business on RT Radio 1 with AIB. We know that your focus is on your business. That's why ours is on supporting you. The Business on RT Radio 1 with AIB. We know that your focus is on your business. That's why ours is on supporting you. Welcome back to the show. This morning you're joining us from Studio 10. You're listening to one of our Christmas specials, a show about music and memories in the company of singer-songwriter Mick Flannery and members of his family. Well, um, the music industry, Mick, is a very tough business. Tell me a bit about when you got started in it and, and your first record, your first album and your first dealings with a, with a, a music label. When I was 20, I released the album Evening Train um, by myself with a lot of help from my sister, Sarah. Um, she helped to do the design artwork and as did Yvonne. And uh, we got it pressed in America and brought it back over here. I was I was living in New York briefly at the time, trying to do kind of open mic nights and things like that. And how was that going? Was that tough? I found it tough because I was so shy and I wasn't I wasn't backing myself really. I was I was putting my CDs into places where I kind of they were kind of false dreams or something like that, or places that I kind of half knew would never bite. I was I guess to some degree too much of a home bird as well. I, I, if I had full-on ambitions for that at the time, I would have stayed in New York. But I came, I came home. I started to sell that album kind of privately around Cork, or some of the bars used to uh, let me sell the CDs behind the counter. There'd be a kind of a money jar there. Tough way to do it. But, well, it was, it was an unhealthy way to do it for sure. He <laughs> felt like you couldn't leave without kind of saying hello, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and. What about record companies and your first record deal? I was um, introduced to a couple of different managers at in the beginning, and then I went I went with uh, one man, and we we got into a deal with uh, what was EMI Records at the time. Being young and uh, probably I should have been a little less naive because of the course I had been attending had uh, set me up for all sorts of like pitfalls and do's and don'ts of the contract signing world. And I just did all the don'ts. Uh, I signed a a long contract, very binding and um, very kind of restrictive. And in those early days, you were working as a stonemason? Yeah. What, you know, it's how would you compare the construction sites to the music business? Funnier. And uh, somewhat, just a, it's a simpler life and uh, a healthier life. I remember, and I still do kind of have this feeling of missing the physical tiredness of having worked on a site all week and that you would get proper sleep as opposed to kind of travelling and touring. You, It can be hard to kind of get proper rest and you're often loaded up with adrenaline after a gig so you, you can't... F- easily fall asleep at, you know, at a decent hour. What about the gym? You could always go it's, into the gym. That's, that's a fair point. But, uh, Sounds like you haven't. 
Yeah, you're right there. I, I, I've never brought a pair of runners <laughs> to. <her. laughs> you, you were in America. You went to LA. Yeah. What was that like? Well, I've gone there a few times. Um, the last time I was there for a long stint was to record an album there. Did you like it? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I was there on my own. Uh, I had kind of decided to cheat on my regular band just to kind of have a kind of a different experience, a new kind of new sound to a degree, and then meeting new people. And Does it feel like cheating if you cheat on the band? Well, it does because I have kind of developed a long-standing relationship with a lot of the people that I play with. I've never really asked them to do anything for free to benefit my career. But by the same token, they they still they go the extra mile for me anyway. And you feel kind of a loyalty to them for that. And uh, What did you make of Los Angeles, the city, as a place to live, the locals? It's an interesting place from the like a people watching and eavesdropping point of view. Did you pick up anything from the eavesdropping? No, anything interesting? Well, you pick up a lot of bad advice <laughs> flying around, and uh, like what? Oh, you just like pseudo managers talking to pseudo actors, and their various conversations with each other, going, "You should do this and that," and it just sounds like complete pie in the sky jackpot thinking. And uh, it's it is a strange place because you just kind of you know that there is a kind of a, a a decent population of of ambition there. A lot of the conversations can be about finding out where and what a person might be useful to you. Um, you know, you can you can kind of overhear that type of I am doing this and that. What are you doing? And if it's not something that can help me, then I have no interest in you. From that experience of dealing with record companies and LA and all of that. What advice would you you give anyone looking to get involved, get into the music business? It's kind of sounds a bit trite to say and it's like kind of easier said than done, but if you were able to uh, surround yourself with just good, honest people, it, your life will go smoother. And Dave, uh, you're with us here. Have you ever thought about going into the business yourself, singing professionally? I don't know. I've only started doing this this year. Mick just asked me if I do support. And do you so, enjoy it? Yeah, I do. I think, yeah. They're very intimidated by it, like, you know, and never having done it before, you know. So Well, you're you're going to do it now, shortly, because you're going to sing a song for us. What are you going to sing? Um, it's a tr- traditional song called Jim Jones to Botany Bay. OK, great. Look forward to it. Come listen for a moment, lads, and hear me tell my tale How o'er the sea from England shore I was condemned to sail The jury found me guilty and said the judge said he For life, Jim Jones, I sentence you across the stormy sea But take my tip before you ship to join the Iron Gang Don't be gay at Botany Bay or else you'll surely hang Or else you'll surely hang, said he, and after that Jim Jones High upon a gallows tree the crows will pick your bones 
There's no chance for mischief there, remember what I say. They'll flog the poaching out of you out there at Botany Bay. The waves were high upon the sea, the wind blew up in gales. I'd rather have drowned in misery than come to New South Wales. And then one night when everything is quiet in this town I'll kill the tyrants one by one and beat the floggers down I'll give the law a little shock, remember what I say You'll yet regret you sent Jim Jones in chains to Botany Bay well, now to two people who are on the shop floor of the music industry every day. Ray O'Brien, who runs Music Zone in Cork City, and Sinead Nixhida from the record break in Ennis. First of all, to you, Sinead, how did you get into the, the record store business? I was actually living over in the UK for about 12 years, and I just come back to Ennis. It's my hometown. I was looking for a Tom Waits album, and I couldn't find one anywhere, and looked it up online, and there was nowhere you could actually buy a record, so... I decided to open up my own record shop. And what about you, Ray? How did you get into it? I started working with Golden Discs um, in 30 years ago, actually, 1984. So I was eight years with them and there was an opportunity to come up in a, a town in, in Cork, uh, Carrigaline. I was very young, but uh, yeah, I went about it. I helped my brother. He kind of, he remortgaged his house. He had a bit of equity in a house and he gave me a few bob and he got 10,000 10, punts off the credit union. And No pressure, Ray. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, it was good. It was good, good enough time still then. Like, you know, CD was big. And it's it's not easy, and I'm sure it hasn't been easy because you had your own challenges. There was a fire. Yeah, we had a flood in 2012 in in a shop we were in in Douglas, and then there was a fire in the car park in the same shop in interaction in 2019. So we had two two kind of uh, what's the word natural, natural disasters is the word Bi- biblical so, stuff. Handy to have a songwriter next to you when you're stuck for a, a few and words. Did you lose? A lot of stock. Yeah, an awful lot in the flood and and about half the stock in the fire, yeah. So it was, um, yeah, very challenging, you know, all right, to kind of get back on the road after it, you know, so. And, and Sinead, you've had your own challenges as well, haven't you? Your, your partner? Yeah, that was um, quite recent. It was October uh, 22. Um, my partner became very ill and quite, quite suddenly um, passed away. So I'm sure that was very difficult for you. Yeah, it was very shocking and, um, yeah, I kind of moved out of the shop just for maybe two months or so and kind of picked myself up again and kept going. And you did something in dedication to him, Sinead? As a kind of like a distraction almost and in dedication, of course, to Sean's memory, I had decided to press a record of our own and have our own kind of shop signature record. So that's in the making. Great. I'm sure you're looking forward to that being yeah, completed. Yeah, it's, it's quite a exciting prospect, really. When it comes to the, the store, one of the challenges is the way the industry has gone now because the, the actual record companies yeah. are selling directly. Yeah, it was funny. You, you were chatting to Mick there earlier about hi, him starting, and I I bought CDs directly from Mick. I'd say in about two thousand and seven, the evening train one. I rang his phone. He had a brochure, a one-page website. I probably got you out of bed. I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> I won't ask what was, time that it was. It was about eleven. <laughs> 
<laughs> but um, yeah, that's why I bought a few CDs because it's like word of mouth around Cork. Oh, this is good. Have you heard it? And you kind of get on it and like your parents dropped in. You, you posted a first batch, I think, and then your parents dropped in a batch to me after. And then you got record companyed up. And then I wasn't buying from Mick anymore. I was buying from the record company, not through Mick. And it's kind of gone full full circle now because Mick is back completely independent, selling his own stuff again, you know. And, so. and is that something you find, Sinead, in a way you're... You're buying from the record companies the mm-hmm. product that you're going to sell, but then you're you're competing with them as well in selling. I wouldn't say it's with with all the labels, but there are certain labels that are kind of you know selling directly to 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 customers. So obviously, I've I've just actually stopped stocking those labels myself. Yeah, there's a, there's a <laughs> phrase going around. It's kind of like your suppliers are your competitors a little bit, you know. <laughs> yeah, you can't. Yeah. Do and that, a lot of yeah. a lot of the vinyl that's sold now, people want different colours and different kinds of stuff. I mean, are are the record labels maybe? taking a lot of the best stuff for the direct sales. Yeah, that's probably always been part of the game, Richard. It was, it's age all the, the, the design stuff, the bespoke stuff, the coloured stuff. It's it's the same back in the day. It's just, it's become more prevalent now, the direct-to-consumer stuff. No. On a day-to-day basis, we work with these people and they're, like, have very good relationships, you know, but, like, they do take some of the cream, you know, and that's just, that's their prerogative, I suppose. They're the rights holders by all accounts. Some know, of the so. bigger businesses behind them. And, yeah. Mick, when you're on tour, do you do you call into some of these record shops around the country when you're when you're in town? or? Um, I'm not a great consumer of music myself. I spend so much of my time kind of searching around for songwriting content that I tend not to turn on any music. I just so you're not Ray's biggest customer then? No, I, I get on very well with Ray, but I, I've never given him a penny. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> he, he hasn't even seen that wallet, never mind it open. Uh, yeah, that's it. that was always, even on building sites, I hated when the, like, when if they were playing music or something, I couldn't concentrate. I just, I would turn the radios down and, like, so you're you're not rushing out to hear, you know, or buy some new album by somebody and and listen to a sample a whole load of stuff. It's just that's not the way you work. No, I kind of listen to what other people are listening to around me, you know, and I kind of I give out about the bad lyrics involved and I kind of move away to the other side of the <laughs> building. How it's all gone wrong. <laughs> and Sinead, in Ennis. I mean, one of the things about having a, a local record shop is it can be part of part of the town. Uh, Ennis has been very good at preserving those kinds of local shops. I'm sure that's something that has helped you in that location. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's lovely in that regard. It's um, it's made up of a lot of independent shops, and we're kind of untouched. I'd say we're probably one of the only towns in Ireland that you know is kind of like preserved that independent shop kind of boutique which is lovely yeah what about uh, customers guys would you rely on uh, maybe even a relatively small number of of regulars people yeah, who are I, buying very regular the total opposite to mick there if you know you are yeah. buying music nearly every week or every month yeah we probably have probably 50 or 60 people who buy a record office every week like and then another 50 or 60 might do it every far and another 50 or 60 every month and you know we know Nine out of ten people who walk through the door, we know their name, we know their kids' names. It's kind of a, it's a different kind of space to an awful lot of shops, really, you know. But the music thing is a lovely thing to be, 
conversing about anyway. And what about Christmas? Is it is it a, a very online, popular gift? The online stuff can be a bit problematic. You asked would it be problematic. The online stuff can be, because you're competing with behemoths really, like, do you know? And like the online stuff can be problematic. You could send a record to someone that might be a little dent on it and they want to send it back, but sending that back to you costs you money, do you know, everywhere, whereas the deep pocket behemoths it wouldn't affect them so but generally in the shop floor one on one face to face is superb okay you know well thank you very much to uh, Ray O'Brien uh, who runs Music Zone in Cork City and Sinead Nixhida from the record break in Ennis thank you make you you're going to have to start buying some music you're going to have to start really getting that wallet open and yeah, I need sampling to, I need to sell some music first before I can buy <laughs> what about de-stressing Mick what what do you do to unwind? Carlsberg. <laughs> uh, I don't really get stressed. I kind of tip along in third gear most of the time. Well, if you had a bit of quality downtime, what would you do? You wouldn't go back to the, the roots in, in stonework or tinkering around with stuff, no? I'd probably just sit alone at a bar and play chess on my phone. <laughs> play chess? <laughs> yeah. I'm addicted to online chess. I play speed chess against strangers over and over again which you, is not actually the most stressful thing I do is plays <laughs> <laughs> the thing that's supposed to help you unwind well when it comes to chess on that note uh, pardon the pun we asked musician and chess coach Una O'Boyle to pen a piece for us about chess and how it helps the brain flourish 90 years ago I walked alone in Paris I was in my 20s I had just sussed a nice combination on the chessboard. Can't remember my opponent, just saw the pieces and the squares. You're not half bad, said a voice behind me. This was my adult reintroduction to the world of chess. Over the next few years, I dedicated my brain to chess thinking and have learned so much more besides the intricacies of the game. I have seen it as a powerful tool for the mind. I've played chess with the visually impaired, with quadriplegics, with children, with the aged, with my dad. All the same, all equal minds on the chessboard. The 12-year-old boy I had to focus hard to beat was severely dyslexic. The now 22-year-old dyslexic girl can remember the moment she found out that she had a very special brain. The select mute children that couldn't stop talking as they got lost in chess analysis. All of these children and more found a way to fulfill their full potential by exercising their unique brains through chess, gaining confidence of mind and developing their socialization. In mind, in a glorious mind, that is where you'll find it The pieces in the mind In my early adult days, I used my mind for music. I was hyperactive yet shy. This would work on stage, but sitting in a chessboard for three hours seemed impossible and improbable. Well, I was wrong. So wrong, but you will have no have no peace. Chess calmed me down. I became more reflective and considerate, less impulsive. In watching the pieces move, 
Chess has taught me the skills of thinking ahead to foresee the consequences of actions. It has taught me peaceful meditation, empathy, and patience. Chess knows no boundaries of age, gender, faith, ethnicity, or disability. It promotes key problem-solving, logical thinking, pattern recognition, spatial awareness, concentration, a sharper mind. Chess can be something very special. It isn't for everybody, but for some, discovering chess can be a life-changing experience. To my chess teacher, who knew how chess would help me. Thanks, Dad. The pieces in the mind. Mick, chess was something that you learned from your dad. Yeah, he taught us. Uh, he taught us all really uh, at young ages, as young as possible, I guess, as as you could understand it. Your dad taught you other games as well, didn't he? P- poker. He thought you. Yeah, he taught cards. us uh, poker and lots of different variants of poker as well. Uh, lots of strange ways of losing your money. Um, you know. Were games like that big in the house when you were growing up? Uh, we 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 had to kind of force him to play poker with us in the end because I think he he had he had played it a lot and he had grown tired of it. I think you hadn't cleaned him out or anything. No, he was he he was quite good at it. You know, he he was a good bluffer. Your dad passed away this year. That's right. Yeah, in August. So it's very recent, and I'm sure it's it, tough times. It's very difficult. Yeah. Um, you miss him. For certain. Um, it's probably too soon to kind of fully understand how I feel about it, really. But yeah, um, we will miss him for sure. And your mom, Elaine, who we talked about earlier, she she passed away a number of years ago from cancer. That's right. That must have been very difficult. Indeed, yeah. Um, of course, you know, losing, losing both parents is... Uh, not the kind of not the way you want to go. Uh, when you look back, what what would you have learned from both of them? The things that you would have taken from them. Um, I I feel very lucky to have had my parents as my parents. Um, they were both quite calm people, uh, funny, uh, loving, and uh, kind of sensitive to other people. I think a calmness was kind of something that was passed down to us and um, a certain kind of honour, I suppose. Any advice that stands out, maybe from from your dad? or I do remember one just, but it was kind of an explicit kind of call to to calmness, really. I was was upset by something that had been written in a a newspaper, I think. I had given an interview and the writer had kind of misrepresented me as I saw it. And I was complaining to my father about the fact that this person kind of put words in my mouth. And uh, he just said, uh, well, you're just going to have to get cool about that because it's probably going to happen again and again. I just, from that day, I decided not to read those things anymore. I never read anything that's written about me anymore <laughs> just because I'm, so bo- I'm only bound to be annoyed by it. Like. So even if you did an interview, you probably wouldn't read it, would you, afterwards? Never, no, no. I, I know what I said. You still play your mum's guitar. That's right, yeah. That's the guitar that David played as well and, earlier. And you're you're left-handed. Yeah, I'm left-handed. I, I play the guitar upside down, kind of 
by accident I, I picked the guitar up that way. I was reading these books that had the chords kind of represented vertically, so I didn't know which was top or bottom. So I just went with what was most comfortable to me, which was to keep my left hand on the strumming side. So that's how that happened. I had gone too far by the time anyone told me I was doing it wrong. It's a real treasured possession for you. Yes, yeah. Well, it's, it's nice to have it. When it comes to ideas, do you draw from family for for your songs, family experiences, things people say, people you remember? I've used a lot of lines from my grandfather. Just small little things, you know, small little phrases. And uh, your grandfather, Yvonne, that's, that was your dad. My dad, yeah. Uh, I'm sure you have lots of memories. What, what, what kind of a guy was he? Big character, very loving, always singing. And my mother did too, but my I guess my my father was the one that would be asked to sing a song kind of thing. He was a bit of a life and soul when it would come to yeah. singing. He, and to, to, to us, he felt like an educator. He was self-taught um, because he left school after national school. He was born, both my parents were born in 1933, so... That time they didn't actually get to go to secondary school, really. They were uh, put out to work. Yeah, he was great. Very and influential man. You're going to play out with the song Machine, which has really strong uh, imagery in it, Mick. And and does that come from your granddad? Does it relate to him? The song, well, my grandfather was a, a mechanic and there was a lot of references to, uh, uh, to mechanic work in this song. But uh, it's... It's only drawn on the imagery, really, as opposed to the feel of the of the man himself. Looking at the stars, he used to, he used to bring you out to look at the stars. Yes, uh, he was very interested in the universe in general and interested in how everything worked. You know, he was very curious as to all like the natural world as it is, like physics and astronomy. He kind of he certainly made big mind left his mark on you. Yeah, for sure. Well, we're going to play out with uh, Mick and Yvonne singing that song, Machine. And I want to thank all of you for joining us today and all our guests on the show. Mick has a busy year next year, including freshly released dates for Vicker Street in February and Cork's Live at the Marquee in June. Today's show was produced by Aideen McLaughlin. Taylor Mooney was our broadcast coordinator. Kieran Dunn was on sound. And until next week, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Walk out back, I always found you Head inside an engine With your rag pushed into your back pocket Hand me ratchet, pass me socket I pretend to be taken By resistors and cables Filters, carburetors And fuel injection ratios That's when you were happy Elbow on the panel Smiling out the window Listening to the gravel She tells me like I need reminding Things round here been slowly dying I run out to my haven Getting away from the fuss and fighting Don't come around here complaining About surface conversation Struggling with emotion and bad communication That's when you were happy, elbow on the panel Smiling out the window, listening to
on RT Radio 1 with AIB. We know that your focus is on your business. That's why ours is on supporting you.